You're listening to Living Cities Forum podcast. This podcast comes as part of our 2022 forum, where we discuss material flows, a theme that examines the global material flows that underwrite our growing built environments. For more, visit livingcitiesforum.org or subscribe to the Amphibian podcast. Good morning. <clears throat> I'm uh, delighted and honored to be here. I, I sort of uh, have the privilege of opening this conversation up after, after Uncle Dave Wandon, and it's a real honor to follow, actually. Um, what I'm going to try to do is loop back to some of the kind of important points that were said on that context. I suppose where I want to start is situating where we are slightly. And I want to put forward to you that we're in a kind of a one in a 400 year transition. A much deeper transition that we're facing than effectively kind of the 1980s, 1990s. I think this is not a kind of a transition of small things, but it's a fundamental transition in how we relate to the world around us. And why I go back to one sort of 400 to 500 years, I'm referencing effectively uh, Newtonian thinking, enlightenment models, which constructed a way for us to be and relate to the world. And that being in relationship to that world was about actually separation of man, I'm going to use that word in commas, from society and ecologies around us. And I think we're at a moment when that way of seeing the world is coming to an end. That's the hypothesis I'm going to run, and I'm going to run you through why that is changing quite fundamentally. So, I think our relationship to matter and materials is going to have to fundamentally change. And as Andrew was rightly saying, the average Swede, let's use the Swede as an example, consumes 27.6 tons of matter a year, and the global average is two tons, right? So when we talk about our relationship with matter, our GDP has almost certainly been one-to-one growth with material consumption. That material consumption is no longer possible. Like, like, to mine the matter, to mine them, we don't have the hydrocarbons to mine the matter that we've been obsessed and linked to. So we're, we're coming to an end of a way of seeing. And in that transition, just to give you some ideas, our society, there's about 8 billion people around the world. Those 8 billion people live on 500 billion human units worth of energy. That is the energy we consume a year. 500 billion people worth of energy. So our civilization at a planetary scale is about 508 billion people's worth of energy. That is what your civilization is worth. You all consume about 2,000 calories. The world around you, you consume extrinsically, lighting everything else, 200,000 worth of calories a day around you. In 2019, between 2019 and 2020, the increase in energy demand in that period was greater than every renewable installed since the 1970s. 
So if you want to talk about the scale of what we're in the middle of, I think we have to start to talk in a completely different way to most of us have lived our lives. Now, I'm going to situate this in a kind of little bit of context about dark matter, and I'm going to go back into this conversation. So, as an organization, what we're particularly interested in is how do you advance, in this great transition, democracy? By democracy, I don't mean the vote. I mean how we democratically create society. How do you democratically make society? Married with that is a kind of freedom, a word that, in language that's not typically used, but how do we create new forms of freedom in this new age? And a freedom not to escape, but a freedom to care. So I think these three things for us have been centerpiece of a lot of our thinking and our work over the last few many years. And across zero zero when we were doing WikiHouse to OpenDesk, that was at the centerpiece of our thinking. But what became apparent to us was whilst we could make open source housing, whilst we could make smaller and more, more and more convenient housing, actually the underlying problems were about land. Underlying problems were about ideas of ownership. If I was to take the word ownership and say ownership is an idea of enslaving a piece of land to your needs, how would you feel about that? Our theory of ownership has been a theory of governance, which was about stewardship, but it's increasingly become abstracted to the point where it's become a theory of enslavement and extraction. I think all those things are coming to the end of their life cycle. DM, we're a not-for-profit based out of the UK. We have teams all the way from South Korea to Vancouver. We can talk about that. To give you a little bit of architectural pedigree, um, I was part of setting up Zero Zero. We built open source furniture company, OpenDesk, WikiHouse, open source housing. We can 3D print uh, around the world. There's a whole community building that, all the way through to impact hubs and also dark matter labs. So I've been part of trying to build stuff in terms of how to do work in different ways. Now, all of this stuff will make sense in a minute as we get into it. The other thing I would say is that in order to do the work that's required, how do we build studios and spaces to do the thinking which are genuinely polymathic? Often as architects, as designers, we focus very heavily on getting the engineers on board. What about the lawyers? What about the finance people? What about the data scientists? So if you're gonna build and design in the 21st century, your kind of multidisciplinary team is not the engineer. So to think about problems in the 21st century, I think we have to change the nature of the teams that we work in. And also we have to change the nature of the work and how we do work and how we collaborate to innovate in different formats. Now, here's my hypothesis. Climate change is a symptom of the failure that we're facing. Symptom, it's not the failure. It's a symptom because it's creating the externalities in the world around us which are effectively self-terminating us as a civilization. And by self-terminating, I really do mean self-terminating. So if you look at even the projections of, uh, I think I have one of these images, let's see, uh, maybe later. I, 
if you look at the projections of seawater rise in 2100, 78 years' time, places like Copenhagen are significantly underwater. 78 years' time. So when we start to think, I think we've become very myopic as a species, that we're looking into 25-year cycles, but aren't even seeing what the numbers are already telling us. The IPCC report actually was predicting many of the events that we're facing in 2040. We're seeing them in 2023. London had 40-odd 40, 40 degrees centigrade. It, IPCC report was a conservative projection of the future. A conservative projection. So the proposition I want to land is that the material waste economy and the world that we've created is a function of structural deep codes of how we've configured our relationship with the world. How we've configured the relationship with the world. Waste is a function of us seeing nature as a resource with no value but exploitation and the additionality to it. How do you start to think about that world in different ways? You know that a tree in Melbourne, in most cities, is not actually valued on the balance sheet of, a, of, of the city. It has prices, it has a cost, which is its maintenance cost and its insurance costs. But actually, its value to society in terms of heat island, heat island effect reduction by 10 degrees is not valued, or flooding risk management is not valued, or actually the asthma that most trees in cities create, largely because we, we plant male trees because effectively female trees are more difficult to maintain. So we plant male trees and they increase asthma. And that's outsourced. So even how we, this is what I mean about there's a fundamental problem with the way we relate to the world. And that relationship to the world is a function of how we constructed a theory of dominion. We control and are dominion of the world as opposed to being in relationship to the world. And that is a fundamental viewpoint that we created an idea of dominion in a world which we thought was infinite 400 years ago. We perceived the world as infinite, perceived, and used it as a mechanism to actually allow for a way to relate to the world in infinite, where we divided everything up into individual actions. Humans were individuated and racialized because that allowed for a permitted violence in the act of racialization. Right? These were devices, conceptions to see the world. And what I'm proposing to you is increasingly we're living in a planetary civilization where no longer can those divisions and isolations be accepted because actually the externalities are self-terminating us. And this is not a problem of here, it's a problem of our deep relationship with the world. And it's our relationship with each other, how we see ourselves, our relationship with time and how we see the future, and it's a problem of how we relate to actually our matter. The English language is predominantly structured around nouns, objects. If you go to the Anishwabi language, you will see it's entirely a verb-based language. A verb-based language means that a mountain is not an object, but a flow of rock. It is flowing. It is in process. So how we have constructed our worldview is fundamentally allowing us to crystallize a way of seeing and also crystallizing a theory of systemic waste. 
And it's in that context that I think we need to re-examine the dark matter, the language of how we structure our, the world around us, our theories of ownership, our theories of assets, our theories of objectification, all those things have to be re-examined if we're going to actually remake the world around us in a new way. And that's a lot of the work that we do. Now, in some of that story, I think we have to start to look at some of the kind of move away from objectification to recognizing our entanglement, to ideas of control, to ideas of being and learning with, to ideas of actually being part of a planetary civilization. If I was to ask you, all of you have probably a microchip or several microchips in your pocket. Bucky Fuller, I really don't like to overquote him because he's genuinely overquoted in my view. Bucky Fuller said it takes a civilization to make a pencil. A civilization to make a pencil. Because you have to get timber, you have to get carbon, you have to get aluminium, you have to get rubber, and you have to do that at scale to give everyone a pencil. Well, to put the microchip in your pockets took 70 billion human beings. That's approximately the number of human beings that have been around, about 70 billion. And it took a whole planet's worth of resources. You are sitting on a precipice of a planetary civilization. You already are. Your material flows, your nutritious flows, your clothes are all part of a planetary civilization. And the question is, how do we live in a planetary civilization with the care and due diligence, as Uncle Dave was saying? It is no longer sufficient to say, I'll live in this one square meter. We have to live in cognition of the whole sky. Now let's put that into context. Most people are familiar with this figure, 1.5 degrees. It's not real. If you ask any of the scientists right now, most people are projecting at 3.5 degrees. 3.5 degrees. But let me give you some numbers. If we go to two degrees, urban environments will be seven to eight degrees warmer, urban environments. Because two degrees is average, and your sea is not going to warm by two degrees. Other places are. Seven degrees temperature rise in cities. What does that really mean? London's hit 40 degrees. I think you're going to see massive transformation. We're going to see 1.2 billion people on the move. 1.2 billion people. That's the current projections. So when we start to talk about this, you have to imagine something akin to World War II, to the scale of global transformation that we're in the middle of. This isn't about tinkering with one or two houses. This is about the transformation of our cities in almost structural senses. So my first invitation to you all is look at the magnitude of what's on the table. The very magnitude of it. European Union has got a commitment by 2050 to retrofit every house in Europe. That is a quarter of a billion house, homes quarter of a billion homes. Now here's the really hard thing. We don't have the hydrocarbons to mine the materials 
to retrofit those homes. Because currently, no energy packet is dense enough to do the mining other than actually petroleum or hydrogen-based, uh, hydrocarbon-based materials. So we are facing a an almighty scale of transition. At 1.7 to 1.8 degrees, food baskets around the world become volatile. In 2008, food prices went up, and we had riots in 60 cities. When the food baskets go volatile, and it's going to, you're going to see crop losses at pretty excessive rates, what does that mean for how we move forward? We're going to have to fundamentally reimagine our food systems and the food sources that we're working in. The volatile weather patterns will mean more of our food will have to be grown inside closed systems. Volatile food systems will mean most of our food will also be vat-grown. And then some of our food will have to be deeply rewilded to get the quality of nutrition that's required to be human. Rewilded food systems are going to be a key part of that mix. This is a project in Copenhagen. I think it's very, very literal. That is a bench that you'll need to sit on in 2100, 78 years from now, in order to deal with the fact the sea has risen. This is Copenhagen. Most of human civilization is very coastal. Jakarta is already moving, you know that, but I think we are completely underestimating the scale of what we're about to go into. And these things are no longer sort of tomorrow world, they're happening today. People are dying today. People are being affected by floods today. And they're dying not in linear ways like a friend of a friend, his godson passed away because he lived in Madrid. He couldn't sleep at night. It was so hot. So he got up in the morning, got in his car with the air conditioning, was driving to work and fell asleep. He passed away. So when I talk about this, I don't mean this is like it will happen in everyday senses around us. My number one plea to you is the scale of what we're about to see. Please, as designers and thinkers of tomorrow, curators of cities, start to acknowledge the scale of what we're about to see. And the fundamental interrelationships of these things. The energy crisis, human migration, mental health. These things are linked. These are integral issues. Everyone talks about uh, outdoor air pollution, well, indoor air pollution is usually five times worse. Indoor air pollution is five times worse than outdoor air pollution. Indoor air pollution takes away one to two years' worth of education of children. If you look, if you live on a busy road, if you live on a busy road, you lose up to two years of your life. Why? On average, because effectively, the persistent buzz of noise drives your cortisone levels to be higher and makes you more vulnerable to chronic diseases. It is this micro-murder that we are now cognizant of. Sleep patterns affect your quality of concentration. 
So as in the 19th century, we built sewers to deal with cholera, we have a new violence amongst us that requires us to deeply reimagine our cities, not just from one perspective, but from an integral perspective. This requires us to think about this stuff in a planetary sense, and I'll keep bringing this word up. I'm going to argue for a moment that this is a moment that's going to require a planetary-scale response, both local and planetary in an integrated way. And it's going to require us to deal with uncertainty. It is volatility that's going to be one of our biggest risks, as volatility makes life uncertain. How do you build the deep resilience of society? In the UK, 80% of people have less than 500 pounds in the bank. 80%. 500 pounds in the bank. So when you talk about that, you talk about a psychological vulnerability of society to deal with the shocks that we're talking about. So what is our relationship to care when you're fragile? What is our relationship to care when you're actually psychologically precarious? If you want to build a society of embodied care, and I think this is the key word, it is not waste, it is the rebuilding of care and the presence to care for each other and our matter and our material world and our ecological world. What is a society that we have to build? Again, the scale of this. This is the economic geography of US. I suspect Australia is not that far different. And why I bring it up is this is all going to change. This is all going to change around you. So again, the economic geography of our societies is not what we've always thought it was, and it will not be consistent. Notting Hill in the 1970s was a dump. In the 1970s, Notting Hill was a dump. Cities were not the central mantra of the development of the world. Economic geographies shift. What does that really mean for the 21st century? You're already seeing a reality that COVID has transformed our ways of living and working. If I was holding commercial buildings, I'd be deeply worried. 60% are probably never going to be filled again. What does that mean for the future of the city and how it operates, how we live? And that sits, like I say, in a global demographic transition. 1.2 billion people on the move. Already in Europe, European southern cities are losing people and European northern cities are gaining people. So this climate migration is already in play. It's not tomorrow, it's today. And what I want to say is that this is a foundational shift in our economies and societies. Our material economy has to become delaminated from our idea of growth. Now, when I talk about growth, I want to preface it on two ways. I'm going to, one, say we are already living in degrowth. 68% of S&P 100 companies if they had to price social environmental costs, are not viable. 68%. That 
that basically means we're living in a zombie economy. An economy that is extractive, non-viable, produces greater externalities than the profits it generates. That is what I mean, that if we're living in degrowth, we're going to have to find a new theory of growth. And that new theory of growth and development is going to have to be focused on reducing our material economy massively. It's going to have to make our material economy radically more durable, radically more circular, and then massively growing our intangible economies. 80% of the value of a startup is not tangible materials, it's intangibles. So we're going to operate in a different type of economy. How do we value and understand that becomes fundamental. I already spoke about food systems are going to change, our energy system transformation that's essential. It, it is at that scale and order. Now, I say this not as a point of fear. I say this as a point of invitation to a generation of people. It is not a theory to talk about this with fear. It is an invitation to all of us to actually be part of a journey of the scale of transformation that occurred in, in our quasi-living memory. It's equivalent to World War II. It's actually much bigger than that, but actually a mere association is World War II. And there is no longer a case, let me just say this calmly, there's no longer a case of saying, we've got to empower the young people. <laughs> it's you. There is no handover to the young people. Frankly, we've got about a thousand days to make substantial changes. Most of your lives, if you do it, we do it together, there is no handing over to our kids. So this handover thing is bollocks. Take responsibility, every one of us. And this does require structural ideas of reform. How do democracies make these sort of choices? One of the biggest challenges we face is that as democracies, we don't know how to make the decisions required. We're locked in to legacy, uh, legacy value, locked into uh, companies holding po politicians, um, manipulating politicians, I'd even say. How do we make these decisions as societies? Reimagining our democratic system was built for 18 to 24 months or four years to make a policy change. It doesn't work. Government is increasingly operating in, on WhatsApp. Our government mechanisms, if you talk to, I was talking to two major government leaders and they said, look, during COVID, all decisions were being made on WhatsApp. We'd already moved beyond the world of kind of policy, policy frameworks. How do we govern that world. And it's not about saying it's wrong, it's actually about solving how do we make that possible? Because the volatility in the world is going to mean that crisis by crisis is going to come. Crisis is the new normal. Imagining it is not is the fallacy. Imagining that we're going to return to a normal where we'll have predictability about the future, that is the illusion. So how do we operate in volatility? How do we as societies make the decision-making capacity for us to make the scale of decisions we're talking about? And that is not about forcing 
politicians and saying, politicians, you make the decisions. The reality is in democracies, we're going to have to build the sensing capacity of citizens, the sense-making capacity of citizens, and then the decision-making capacity of citizens. And that is what democracy requires. And to do that, I'll give you an example. We did this in Impact Hub Birmingham, where we got people off the street and we asked them, what do you think about universal basic income? What do you think people said? People liked it? No. 74% of people, richy randoms off the street, said, no, we don't like it. We don't think it's a good idea. People are going to go lazy, they're going to sit at home, drink their beer, and that's what they're going to do. They spent a day with us. During that day, they did research on universal basic income. We had speakers, various other things. And at the end of the day, we took the vote again. At the end of the day, 80% of people voted for universal basic income. I thought, God, aren't we clever? We created this learning pedagogy, all this stuff. No, it wasn't anything to do with that. It was the fact they'd spent a day with each other where the hairy guy with a turban was no longer an alien. So well, he's a bit like me. And as soon as the de-othering had happened, where you were not othering everyone else, the decision model changed. You thought differently about the world. So if we keep building democracy on theories of opinion, you create, you reinforce an othering idea of the world. Whereas if you create deliberative spaces for these discussions, you create a different decision-making model. Our, our, our politics is a function of how we're asking the question. It is not a function of other things. It's a function of how we're asking the question. So how do we build that capacity? How do we respond to this age of volatility? How do we deal with actually increasing uncertainty? If you want society to be able to resiliently build with, deal with uncertainty, we're going to have to build the anti-fragility of society. We're going to have to build the capacity of citizens to be able to absorb risks and shocks. And how do we deal with those risks? Most risks are not priced on, the social, on our states. States aren't looking. Most states, in terms of, I'll use a preventative health. Preventative health investment by states is less than 2% of budgets. 2%. 2%. And the reason why it's that is because actually states don't account for future liabilities. The 10-year health costs, chronic health costs, aren't on the books of states. So if we're going to build preventative systems, we're going to have to actually build the architecture and the public accounting mechanisms to do that prevention. Social impact bonds were, were poems of this future, but we need structural reform to be able to deal with it. And this volatility, like I say, is already happening. Everything around us, uh, whether it's people movements, whether it's actually sort of uncertainty in terms of um, all sorts of things around energy production, energy rights, uh, all the way beyond. And you're seeing this certainly from a Europe perspective, the scale of fragility on the table. So what does it mean to be relevant in this moment? And one thing I'd say is most of what we're doing is irrelevant. And I include ourselves in this. I'm not trying to put ourselves on any stage. 
but I want to acknowledge the scale of what we're sitting against. So what is relevance to that moment? How do we make practice relevant to the scale of the transition facing our cities and places? How do we acknowledge that we can no longer operate on the idea of single point optimization? Sorry, it's a geeky word. Like, trees are not just carbon. Let's put it that way. Trees are a hell lot of other things. How do we operate in a world that is actually visibly entangled? A tree contributes to all sorts of things. Flooding risks, biodiversity, microbiomes, uh, heat island effects, all the way to asthma rates, carbon sequestration, all sorts of things. How do we operate in that world? How do we recognize our lock-ins and the scale of those lock-ins into our present-day reality? And the scale of economics response required in terms of, I think, our language is no longer fit for purpose to describe the scale of challenges we face all the way through. So, if a new response is required, I'm going to put forward a few ideas. One, we're going to have to start to think at a scale that we're not used to. 1.2 billion people on the move. How do we deal with that reality? How do you transition whole cities, their energy systems, their mobility systems? And the mobility systems, by the way, are not electric cars. That's just marketing shit. It's electric bikes. It really is. If you look at the numbers of electric bikes in terms of carbon, material impact, and the health impact, and the integrated effects of that, that is where we're headed. Anyone, any city preparing for electric cars is making a strategic error. You need to be preparing for electric bikes. So how do you start to think at that scale? Energy, food, mobility systems, retrofit, actually changing the scale of economic geography. And none of us are used to it because we've become so project-focused. Single projects, single pieces of regeneration, a building, a cultural center being opened. And it's not that game anymore. And we are going to have to talk about new cities. How do we build them? If you look at the number of camps that are growing around the world that are 40 years and old, we are literally talking about cities that are already being built as informal settlements grow. When people put up those magic numbers, you know, on charts where they go, urbanization is the future. What they fail to tell you, that urbanization is slums. That's what they're really saying. It doesn't sound so sexy when you say it that way. Because we don't have the materials to build the cities in, that way, in any other format. And my genuine number one plea is, have the honest conversation. In that honesty, and I'm not saying I'm right, Find your own facts. But in the honest conversation, you will be able to do things and see the world for where it is and find radical hope in that. How do you build 
the scale of kind of whole city transformations. We're working with the European Commission on 100 net zero cities. And when you start to get into the depths of it, you start to really understand the scale of even putting a tree canopy that we're building in Glasgow and also in Daegu City. To build a tree canopy of a city, how much work that is. In terms of being able to finance, a tree canopy is $180 million. It's not like a little project. And Melbourne did some great work with trees here. Love letters to trees and emails being sent. It was amazing. So how do we talk about landscape-level restoration and financing those landscape-level restorations? Those are going to be the mega projects of this year and coming years. Soil restoration at a whole landscape level. And these new typology of responses, like I say, retrofit, whole cities, mental health. Mental health is equivalent to the 19th century idea of physical health. So in the 19th century, when we built sewers, we're going to have to reimagine our theory of mental health for the 21st century. That is what would the equivalent of it. And if you look at it, whether it's air pollution, sound pollution, um, financial crisis in people's households and the impact it has on that, we're going to have to look at every single aspect of it. Those are the numbers that I was talking about. 50,000 homes retrofitted a day. That's the numbers just to hit our targets. And that requires all sorts of transformations, all the way through to supply chains, to how you build it, you don't have the materials, you don't have the labor force, you don't have the regulatory frameworks. It is the scale of what we're talking. This is just to give you an idea of the trees, to finance the trees and in a hybrid economy, how do you structure that, that whole organization to finance 180 million trees? This is in Glasgow. The mental health framework. Again, think of 19th century. Rebuilding of sewers, how do we build that for, for mental health? And that requires a whole portfolio of interventions. That requires a whole portfolio of new ways of thinking. Soil is infrastructure, logistics is infrastructure, thinking at that scale. Infrastructure in the 21st century is not about roads, it's about mobility. Mobility is an output infrastructure, an outcome infrastructure, a function of multiple things that come together. And that transformation has to be at an integral level. You cannot do energy poverty on the ground. You have to do energy, health, um, air quality, all of it at an integral level. That is how you make the numbers work. We've been looking at the numbers of retrofit. You can't make the numbers work on energy alone. And this requires us to recognize this point of living in entanglement. If you were to look at a house, a badly made house, private house, where do the costs come? They come all over the place to different parts of the state. Social, education, health outcomes, all of these things are where the liabilities of that bad house generates. How many of you people own a house here? Put your hands up. Come on, all of you, right? So, now if you were to take your house and I was to move it into the middle of Siberia, how much is your house worth? Siberia, mind you. Nothing. 
because you can't get the money out. Can't even go there, in fact. Why is that important? So if I move your house to Siberia, why is your house worth nothing? Because it's not your house that holds the value. It's the land. And it's not even the land. It's the access, the monopolistic access that that land provides to schools, birds, trains, labor markets, water streams. So the value of your house is not your house. So if your house prices have gone up, and they've gone up massively, right? What do you think's gone up? Because we've just agreed the house is not the point. It's the common goods that have gone up in value. Labor markets, local ecologies, schools, parks, that's what's gone up in value, not your house. So if you look at the world through an entangled way, our theory of value and the privatization of value is deeply problematic. If you look at a tree, as architects, we used to draw trees all the time, images like that. But unless you look at the benefits of the tree and able to bring those benefits to the table, the trees are just killed off after every 10 years, which is why most cities chop trees after 10 years, because the maintenance and the insurance costs become too high. And then they tell us all, hey, we'll plant some new ones. The problem is, a tree at 40 years of its life starts to give you the environmental benefits, services, ecosystem relationships after 40 years. So how do we start to think about that? How do we start to think about value in a fundamentally different way? When you start to not only look at the cost of treatment, the prevention to the thriving, what is that value? How do we bring it back forth? How do we price the act of not doing something? And I think that's the greatest risk that we face, is the act of not doing something right now. How do we look at logistics pricing? And most of our work is starting to see that to do any of these big things, you have to think about this stuff at a population level. And that's going to require a whole new theory of governance around how do you invest into that. This is a good example. We did some work around the High Line in New York. How many of you know the High Line? Okay. So, how many, so Highline cost $174 million to build, $174 million. It struggles, they're brilliant people, and it still struggles to maintain itself. $174 million. If you just took 10% of the land value uplift it generated, how many years do you think it would take to pay for the Highline? Numbers. One year? One year? Any others? 0.5. It's between you guys. It's about 10 months. 10 months. So the land value uplift attributable to the High Line is $304 billion, billion dollars. The cost was $174 million. The total tax take was 103, just in case everyone asks me, well, you get your money back through taxes. You don't. 304 billion. Now, the reason why I say this is that what I'm trying to articulate is this is the best real estate deal ever made. Because if you can invest in civic goods, they create vast privatization or spillovers of value. 
And I think the civic goods are going to be the basis of our investment in renewal, not private goods. And increasingly, we're able to model this stuff. And increasingly, we're able to price this stuff. And increasingly, we're able to build institutions like smart covenants to deal with this stuff. So I think we're at the emergence of a new economy, a new civic economy, which allows us to recognize the value of civic goods in society and not see them as mechanisms that just feed private economics. And those civic goods and those structures open up all sorts of ways of financing, whether it's a tree canopy or the soil restoration of land. All these things that are actually outside our current economic models. And they invite us to think about different ways of operating. Where are we operating the specialization of things, the co-benefits of things, or a new relationship of care in the world? What is a contract of care in the world? How do you move and I think this is slightly geeky, but I want to make the point that we are fundamentally making a move from the private economy, which is a relationship between two parties, to a many-to-many -many economy, which is recognizing our relationship with many-to-many. -many. That is a function of us transforming our bureaucratic idea. It is a bureaucratic revolution. And that changes the materiality of every good and its value. And it changes our economics. But this also requires us to embrace kind of an enlightenment, enlightened entanglement. You've seen many amazing things happening where rivers are being made self-sovereign, forests are being made self-sovereign. So what if a forest governs itself and owns itself? What if the building governs itself and owns itself? How do you do that? and some of the work that we're doing around building the institutional infrastructure around that. What if a car governs itself and owns itself? What if you do that with a camera? How do you start to reimagine a new relationship with the world where we are not owners and enslavers of things, but actually in treaty with those things? And this goes back, I think, to a two-eyed way of seeing where technology is opening an opportunity for us to embrace the enlightenment and embrace the entanglement simultaneously, an indigenous and entangled view simultaneously with an enlightened view. And that, I think, is a revolution. The future is not going to, is not going to be like the past. It's going to rhyme like the past. And it's going to rhyme in a different way. And I think we're in a fundamental transition of that order in order to deal with the entangled reality of a tree. Tree cannot be enslaved to my needs alone. And that is material for much of the world, the house or other things as we've talked about. And that involves us to changing our theories of governance from control-orientated ideas of controlling things and governing things through ownership through actually, and agility is not enough, but actually new ways of operating through learning. And I think this is the scale of what we're talking about, a fundamental transition with our relationship with the world at every level. And this new class of challenges, I'm saying, requires us to reimagine our deep codes how we conceive ourselves in the world, how we conceive others in the world, and how we recognize our entanglement. And it requires us to look at everything. 
Our common goods theory is largely about preservation, not renewal. We don't know how to renew common goods. All of our big treaties are all about preservation. How do we renew common goods? How do we deal with effectively new theories of beyond ownership? How do we deal with a world of entanglement which isn't about simplistic ideas of control of objects? All of this changes. So if we want a new materiality, we have to reimagine our relationship with the world. It is not a technological fix alone. It is actually a structural fix of how we relate. And it requires us to think fundamentally in a different way in terms of long-termism and our future to long-termism. My final point here is that I think the invitation to all of us is to recognize that we're living in a planetary civilization. And there's no pathway to a great simplification. This is where it's slightly tough. I was in the US, and in the US there's kind of two types of rhetorics amongst progressive. How are we gonna deal with the collapse? By being able to make your own ax, right? How do you get metal, timber? How do you deal with the collapse? And the other one is eco-villages. And I think they're both bollocks. Because when you put eight billion people with distributed nuclear we weapons, bioterrorism on the table, there is no way back. There is a way forward into a planetary civilization. And that requires us to rhyme with history and rhyme with indigenous knowledge and take it forth at a planetary level with a new way of being. And that, I think, is really the deep reconciliation that is necessary, required, and available to us by a new theory of bureaucracy and technology. With that, I genuinely thank you for your time and patience to listening to me, Yabba, for this time. Thank you. You're listening to Living Cities Forum podcast. This podcast comes as part of our 2022 forum, where we discuss material flows, a theme that examines the global material flows that underwrite our growing built environments. For more, visit livingcitiesforum.org or subscribe to the Amphibian podcast.